Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy as I prefer or have a device in front of you, I want you to find the book of Acts, the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I want you to turn to the book of Acts, and I want you to find the 20th chapter, Acts chapter 20, and this morning I'm going to read a few passages from there, beginning in verse 32. But before I begin, I want to welcome you back into this sermon series we've been walking through during the month of January. We've called the sermon series the year 2021. And the reason we've called it that is because we recognize people, churches, organizations, organisms move in all sorts of ways and for all sorts of reasons. Some folks are fleeing something in their past. Other folks are chasing after a dream. Some folks are searching for direction. And on the first Sunday of this year, I challenged you to remember that we, while there are times when we chase and times when we flee and there are times when we search, ultimately, if you are going to describe our momentum, we are people who are sent. In fact, that's what we call this sermon series, 2021, people who are sent. Here's what you know about a man or a woman who is sent on a mission. Number one, they're not operating on their own authority. They've been sent by someone else. But two, they have a clear direction. They know what they are supposed to be and do. And we get this from our church verse. We did something this year we've never done before. We decided to grab a verse in the New Testament and sort of make this the theme verse of our year. And in order to keep it memorable, we chose John 20, 21. The address of the verse matches the calendar year. And the reason was it was so appropriate. When we think about John 20, 21, we remember this was given by Jesus the night of his resurrection. The death of Jesus on the cross is extraordinarily significant. But without the resurrection, Jesus is just one of many, many people who have died for a cause. When he rose from the grave, the validity of his testimony was proven. He is and was the perfect, sinless Son of God. And therefore, his resurrection showed his defeat over the curse in our life, our own sin, our own mistakes, our own brokenness. So having already defeated all those things, having resurrected but not yet ascended into heaven, Jesus appeared in the upper room with the disciples on the evening of the very first day of the week of his resurrection. And when he appeared to them, he gave them the mission. In fact, I've asked many of you to be ready when I meet with you in public to say this verse. I want you to know, on testimony, some of you have nailed it. I've bumped into a few of you and you've volunteered. Pastor, I've got the verse memorized. I want to say it. A few of you have paraphrased it biblically acceptable. Some of you have created heresy. Heresy is false teaching, and I've asked you to go back and review the verse again. And so this Sunday, just like Corey did last week and I did the two weeks prior, we're going to take just a moment and we're going to read this verse together. So I want you to read with me out loud John 20, 21. Ready? Go. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And there it is. I told you week one, 
I felt like for many of us, 2020 happened to us. I want to happen to 2021. And that's not just motivational jargon. The idea is that when we are sent, we operate under God's authority. We have a clear direction and mission. Think about that in contrast to our nation today. I had the privilege of joining white and black pastors this week at a pastor's roundtable we hosted on our campus, and we discussed the issue of race and the gospel. It was so beneficial to listen to the different perspectives, but one of the common denominators is that the more our country divides in all the ways that it divides, the more clear the church's mission becomes. Nothing has changed about our marching orders. We are to make the gospel of Jesus known, and when God in his grace redeems a person, when he saves someone by their faith and repentance of sin and by them casting themselves at his mercy, and he lovingly and graciously writes a rescue story in their life because there's never been a battle he's lost, he does all things well. When this happens, we then take that brand new Christian, red or yellow, black or white, we take that brand new Christian and we grow them in the Lord. It's called discipleship. We give them God's word and we worship and we encourage one another. And like never before, it has become clear that is the only way our church remains relevant, that we live sent. And so we've been talking about this idea of what it means to be sent together week one. Last week, my brother preached a message to you about how we are sent to grow week two. And this morning, I want to briefly look into God's word and show you that we are sent to give. Now, the way we've done this is we've said right after that happened, when Jesus gave that commission, the church was born. Jesus ascends into heaven. And the first few chapters of the book of Acts, where we are this morning, shows us the unfolding of the Holy Spirit into the lives of believers. And the people of God begin to attempt to serve him as a body of Christ, the church. And throughout the book of Luke, we get these selfies, Corey called it last week. I thought that was a good term. These selfies where Luke just describes in one word picture how the church is doing. A few weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where we see the unity and the gathering of the church. Last week, Corey pointed out over in Acts 9, where they begin to grow around the apostles' teaching of the word, and he took you from there into the writings of Peter. And this morning, I want to show you something that the apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 20. See, I remember taking the book of Acts in seminary and studying it under a New Testament scholar. And he said to us students, you can study the book of Acts really under two characters. The first half of the book of Acts is really about Peter and the other Jews reaching their own people. But then the second half of the book of Acts is about the gospel going beyond Jerusalem into the lives of people who were not Jewish. The biblical word for non-Jewish people is simple. Gentiles. There was a big debate. It was a cultural debate, a religious debate, and to surprise of a lot of people, it was a racial debate over whether or not the Gentiles could be saved. You see, racism is nothing new. Racism, this is not the first civilization of people who have felt division and animosity and confusion. God's word speaks directly to it. And when God revealed that his desire is to call people to faith in Christ from every tribe and from every tongue and from every nation, and the word 
nation in the New Testament is the word ethnos, where we get our word ethnicity. So all people are given the opportunity to come into a saving relationship with Christ, people who are redeemed by his blood. When this happens, Paul, who described himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Jew of the Jews, Paul is the one who takes the gospel to these Gentiles. And in the book of Acts chapter 20, he is dealing with the Ephesian elders. And the Ephesian elders are about to part ways with Paul. And listen to what he says in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then Paul talks about his character. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. So Paul, in a day and age of false teachers who wanted to profit off the gospel, said, I worked right along with you. I I made a living myself so that I wouldn't be a burden to you. Verse 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, We must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And this is where in the book of Acts, if you have a translation like mine, the ink goes from black to red. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Now, you know what's interesting about that phrase? We can't find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. In fact, this is one of those rare nuggets in the scripture where we have a quotation from Jesus that's not recorded in the Gospels. We know everything Jesus said and did wasn't recorded in the Gospels, and this is one of those moments where Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us this phrase, it's more, we are more blessed and more blessed to give than to receive. We are a people who are called to give. Uh-oh. I came on money Sunday. I can see devices all over the United States shutting down, minimizing. You know, there was a time in my life where I might not have been as excited to preach on giving and generosity as I am today. But you know, the Lord convicted me of that. And here's the reason why. What do you want your pastor to want for you? It's a simple question, a little bit wordy. What do you want your pastor to want from you? I'll tell you what I want for you and what I would want you to know. I want you to be in the center of God's will for your life. And here's the reason I want that. I know that if you line your life up not according to spin or opinions or someone else's twist, but just God's will, his word, his pure unadulterated word, the Holy Spirit's guidance in your life, the gospel. I know if you line your life up with that, you tap into an incredible amount of joy and fulfillment and strength. It will not make your life easier. In fact, the scripture says if you want to follow the Lord, it's going to get harder before it gets easier. But I've just never met a person who lived their life in the center of God's will and regretted it. I've met hundreds of folks who strayed from God's will Perhaps you have in your life, I certainly know I have in my life, who regretted that. But I've never met someone who followed God's will and regretted it. So when it comes to the subject of generosity and the posture of giving we should assume, 
I want my pastor to be unashamed, to be bold, and to encourage me to follow God's will. In fact, I'm going to stand before you this morning and share with you some things that I have not spoken about uh, since one year ago today. And the reason is, we've all been navigating a pandemic and an election together. It just wasn't time. But today, it's time. I have two desires I want to briefly inform you, and then I want to dive right back into this text, and I want to inspire you. So whether or not you've been a part of our church since day one, or you're brand new this morning, I promise you, if you'll open your heart, you're about to be encouraged in the subject of generosity, and I got no guilt to give out. I'm not really even interested in your money. What I'm interested in is the receptivity and the softness and the tenderness of your heart. And I believe that if you will submit to the Lord, then he will teach you something today, not just about generosity or giving, but about your heart and the spiritual priorities of your life. Now, the risk you always run when you preach a message like this is that you have a guest that says, yeah, I went to Church of the Mill and all they talk about is money. Actually, I haven't preached on this subject in over a year for right reasons. But the reason I come to you this morning is because I have some great news to share with you. One year ago, we had a campaign called Greater 2.0. The reason it was called 2.0 is because the 1.0, the first one, had come to an end. Now, don't allow the language to confuse you. Greater is just a word we used to identify the spiritual and financial journey we went on as a church to build the facility that you walked in today. You sit and worship. And for those of you watching online, the reason that the picture is in high definition and the sound is the best quality that exists in church broadcasting is because we have the privilege of doing ministry from a 16.8 million, 93,000 square foot facility. Last Sunday, as I spoke to my brother when he drove back home to Alabama, and I was driving back from the church that I preached in, his church, wonderful, precious people, he talked about how incredible the space was because he said, DJ, I've never preached in a room that large or to that many people, but by the time the worship ministry finished doing their incredible work, I felt connected to every person in the room. There's a reason for that, and there's a price tag for that. And so we went on a journey. But when we went on this journey, I told you there was going to be some no's and some yeses. I want you to know that. Whenever we talk about giving or money around Church at the Mill, there's no pressure. There's no manipulation or guilt. Even if someone stooped to this level, it never works. And certainly a man of God should never stand before his church and do that. Also, there are no gimmicks. We, 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 we don't have any gimmicks. What we want more than anything is to give you all the information and let the Lord lead you to do what he's called you to do. We also don't want to overemphasize a campaign or goals or objectives and de-emphasize God's Word. I camp in God's Word each and every week, but there are times when I hit pause as your pastor to bring you up to speed as to where we are. Because let me tell you what we want to do. This is what we want to say yes to. We want to say yes more than anything to connect generosity to our ability to do ministry and missions. And when I say our, I mean plural, all of us. We want to encourage and challenge you who are new. In fact, there's over 250 of you who weren't even here last year, who've joined us online or in person. In addition to that, we want to learn the joy of generosity and the obedience of God's Word. You see, 
this church is a result of joyous generosity. Way back in October of 2016, we didn't have a room on our campus where we could all meet together. So we went with our friends over at the Upward Star Center. They graciously opened up the Star Center. We turned it into a worship service. And on that day, families like yours and mine, families that live paycheck to paycheck, families that aren't exceptionally wealthy, made commitments to build this facility. And we broke ground, and we built this facility, and when we did, we vacated our former worship center, and now that's a state-of-the-art children's worship area. In fact, for those of you with kids in children's church this morning, they're over there worshiping in an incredible space that we've upfit for them, and it was a great and wonderful journey. Let me tell you about God's provision in that. When we moved into this building in Palm Sunday of 2019, we discussed at times broadcast, but it was not a priority. Little did we know the investments that you and I made in the sound and the lighting and the HD cameras would put us in a perfect position when COVID shut down our ability to have live services. And our online worship services were at a quality that allowed people to connect as best they could because of God's provision. None of us are smart enough to see that we needed to do that. Yet there was one group of people that we weren't able to take care of. It was our students. Our preschoolers have incredible space, our children have space, our adults have space, but we knew going into it, even when we cut the ribbon on this building, we needed to address our student ministry. And last year, I came to you with a proposal our leaders had researched and believed in to take our current gymnasium, Christian Life Center, and transform it into a state-of-the-art student center so that they too can have a place. In fact, when this is finished and you walk in, the entrance to my left, your right, you'll see a new entrance that matches our front entrance going into a student center that's two stories. The first floor will be a great worship area for our middle school ministry, fellowship area, and we're going to maintain a portion of it to be an indoor court. The second floor will be a handicap accessible worship area for our high school ministry. A rollout garage door will be installed, which will flow out into some great outdoor recreation and fellowship space. And we think this is important. It was important a year ago, but it's more important today, and here's why. Of any generation that has struggled to stay connected with church, I believe our students have faced the greatest challenge. Facilities don't reach students or grow the students that we have. But facilities do create a space of identity where a group of people can be loved on and surrounded by godly men and women to teach them the word of God. Our student ministry is growing in two ways. I don't know if you noticed, we are a fertile bunch. Do you know what happens to children if you don't kill them? They become teenagers. So if we don't reach another student far from Christ, which we're going to, just the sheer volume of children who are on their way into our student ministry means our student ministry is way past being out of space. But in addition to that, even during COVID, we've had students, not their families, students connect with us online and become connected with our church because they begin to watch our services and connect with our student ministry. So last February, on February 2nd, families like yours and mine, we all gathered together and we made pledges for Greater 2.0 with two goals. First goal was to aggressively keep retiring our debt. And secondly, to provide the funding to upfit our Christian Life Center. And you did it. 
you pledged $2.1 million, gave us the green light, and we set off going. Little did we know that a virus was making its way into our lives. A few weeks after Greater 2.0 and all the momentum and excitement, boom, we shut down in-person worship. We go virtual only for 14 weeks, and it's in the summer before we can reopen first outside and then here. So what, what did we do? Well, we did what wisdom would say. We, we paused. We hit pause. But we also continued to prepare. And in the preparation, a couple of things happened, and this is really cool. One, you kept giving. We didn't miss our budget last year. You stayed faithful. In addition to that, we entered into a new partnership with a new building partner. And after a lot of cost analysis and some really hard work from some really smart people, they don't allow me to attend those meetings, we reduced the price tag of that project from around 3.3 to down to 2.5 million. There's an even better story. Now listen to this. I have learned phrases like amateurization. In fact, now I have even received a few emails that have a spreadsheet with tabs. I ask people to tell me what it means because I can't even create a spreadsheet with one tab, much less three. Some of you do this for a living. When we borrowed the money to build this building, do you know what that meant? It meant we had to chart out with our banking partners how much we would owe along the way. We were projected on the first day of 2021 to owe $13 million on this facility. Now remember, it's a $16.8 million facility, so that would be rather impressive to have $3.8 million of equity after two years. On the first day of January this year, we owed $9.7 million. That's remarkable. Now let me tell you what that means. That means we're 25% ahead, or we owe 25% less than what we thought we would owe. Now watch this. With our aggressive address at debt and your faithful giving, here's the big ask this morning. This matters. Listen, it means that we believe we're in a position to pay cash for the student center, to not enter into a relationship with a banking partner and to pay cash and not incur any more debt. A year ago, I could not say that to you. In order to do that, I want to be very clear what that means. That means that we could save somewhere between sixty and $80,000 of bank origination fees, appraisals, and all of the stipulations and fees that go along with that. It also puts us in a position to continue to aggressively retire our debt. If we did not grow financially $1, we should be debt-free in about a decade. We're going to grow. So can you imagine in less than 10 years, we're debt-free? Now, you may say, well, Pastor, what does that mean? It means an additional $1 million for missions and ministry every single year. We're not interested in campus building. This is the last move to take care of every generation. Can you imagine the family that comes in and visits, and from our concourse, every single generation, from a grandmother to a baby, can walk and not cross a road and not leave a parking lot, can walk to a state-of-the-art facility to minister to their needs? Have you seen the houses that are being built all around us? 
this is by far the next step for us finally completing this campus. Now, I say all that with a clear request from you. The folks that watch our stewardship and our finances have shared with me a number. If we see an additional $800,000 raised and given to Greater, the building fund, between now and the end of May, we will write a check and pay cash for the student center and not incur any more debt. I know when you hear a number like that, it's overwhelming. I know it is for me. All of this is. There's no class for this in seminary. I've had to learn with you as we've grown. But let me tell you how that happens. It doesn't happen with you feeling like you're on the outside looking in because $800,000 is more than you could ever imagine. It happens when you recognize the building you're setting in was not built by four or five people who have tremendous wealth. It was built by ordinary families saying we can do $100 a month. We can do $25 more a week. We can make a difference. There are four ways we're going to get to this number. First, if you made a commitment to Greater 2.0, you were here with me a year ago, whether online or in person, make sure you catch up on your commitment. You know, there's a reason why I haven't asked for a dime, nor have we talked about money. I felt like families needed to make sure they took care of their neighbor, loved one another, and we needed to just keep doing ministry. To be quite honest with you, after mid-March of last year, my focus wasn't on the student center. It was on making sure we could deliver things like virtual VBS, e-disciple, and the other ways in which we tried to connect with people virtually. But we believe this virus is coming to an end. And I want us to have the largest Easter and fall we've ever experienced. To do that, I need you to catch up. Some of you can accelerate. You may say, Pastor, I had pledged, but I could give more of it now. You may be given from an inheritance or a savings account. Accelerating your giving helps us because of our cash position. Others of you may need to add. There's been some families in our church that have lost jobs, been furloughed. Perhaps COVID has affected their finances. But for every family like that, I've talked to a half a dozen of you who said, my business is going great. Uh, the school district didn't cut me back. I've been called in to teach more. I'm a home builder, and I've never had more business. I'm doing more than we've ever done. Our factory, our business was connected to this or to that, and we've done really well. When God blesses you financially, he wants you to raise your standard of giving before you raise your standard of living. And so some of you may be in a position to say, you know what? I've been wondering how to honor the Lord. Here's a great way. And finally, so many of you are new. And you may say, well, students, I don't have a student. If you have a two-year-old, don't blink. They will be a sixth grader before you know it. You can help us. Every family does in some way. How does this work? Well, it's simple. Online giving used to be supplemental. Now it's the way in which we keep the doors open. Some of you choose to give physically, and that's fine. They're offering boxes around. But many of you have already learned how to give online. If you hadn't, it's rather simple. Go to churchthemill.com. There's a red arrow. Now, the red arrow is there for your help today. We haven't installed that in the website yet. But go to the red arrow and click on give. Maybe not a bad idea. And when you click there, you'll be prompted to answer a few questions, and you can give today. There's every means available. Why am I not ashamed to ask for that? Because I believe God's using our church. And I believe with all my heart that I could never stand before you in integrity and ask if Laurel and I weren't willing to give sacrificially, accelerate our giving, and dig a little deeper. And that goes back to how I want to leave you this morning. 
I want to just close with a word from this passage. You know what Paul says about Jesus? Jesus says in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. He says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus and how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I begin to think about that, and a question occurred to me. Why? I mean, I've heard it all my life. Why is it more blessed to give than to receive? I don't know about you, but I like receiving too. Feels pretty good. In fact, it's not even a sin to want. Babies are born wanting their mother. We want affirmation. We want love. We want to spend our life with someone we fall in love with. We want our children to be protected. We want to feed our families. Wanting things in and of itself is not sinful. So why is it more blessed to give in order to receive? Why should the posture of our life be one of giving? And I was reminded about something. I don't know if you know this. You can test me if you want. Take a look in your copy of God's Word. Do you know the two subjects Jesus talked about the most? It's funny, they may come at you a little bit odd. He talked about hell and money. Why? Well, there are a lot of scholars who may have a better answer, but here's mine. He talked about hell because he came to save people from it. Heaven and hell are real places where people go. We deserve to go to hell because of our sin, but by God's grace, we can go to heaven. I'm going to heaven today. Not because I don't deserve to go to hell, but because Christ didn't deserve hell, and he endured hell on the cross to pay for my sins. So Jesus talked about hell. You know why he talked about money, though? Some people think, well, he must have wanted some. You know, he actually started out better than he ended. By all accounts, he was raised in a modest home, but he had what he needed. By the time he dies, he's naked, beaten, and poor. Even the guy he tapped to take care of their money, Judas, sold him out. He said at the end of his life, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He died a pauper on a cross. So Jesus didn't talk about money because he was enamored by money. He talked about money because of what he knew. Money may be one of the greatest physical things we can calculate, look at, see, save, spend, and earn that determines and shows the barometer of our heart. And the reason I know this is because of something he said. He said a lot about money, but I want to take you to something else Luke wrote. If you want to turn left in your Bible very briefly to Luke chapter 12, I want to read four verses to you in closing. Jesus actually starts in Luke chapter 12 with the discussion of worry. In Luke chapter 12, he's talking about worry and anxiety. We've never been a time where people have worried or been concerned more. A day doesn't go by where a church member doesn't ask me about their concern or worry about our economy, about their health, about the virus, about the election, about the changing of power, the wondering of where our, our nation is going, the divisions that seem to exist now, perhaps more than ever before, or at least they've been enamored before us or elaborated more than ever before. And so Jesus is talking about worry, but he does something fascinating in Luke chapter 12. On the heels of worry, he brings up generosity. Of all things, he goes from worrying to sharing. Let me show you what I mean in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, that's an affectionate term, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And here it comes. 
the power-packed sentence of the day. Grab this sentence and take it home with you. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then it hit me. Why is it more blessed to give than receive? First, because of the generosity of God. We don't serve a stingy God who only asks us to do the giving. In fact, at his very core, God is a giver. He's the giver of life, the giver of his son. He gives us the gift of salvation. In fact, when you read this passage and you study it, Jesus compares. He's saying, it's not a sin to want. Just want things that last. He says, God's going to give you the kingdom. People have been fighting for over a year about who controls the nation of the United States. We are fighting as a humanity worldwide over the control and hopefully the eradication of a virus. The world is constantly fighting and grappling, and yet Jesus says, God's going to give you the kingdom. Now, the interesting thing is, in verse 31, the same passage, he says, Seek ye first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. It's not that I shouldn't care, that I should be a, a, a bystander. I should be actively seeking God's kingdom, but I don't have to seek my place in the kingdom. It's been given to me. When God gives you a place in the kingdom, what does he give you? What kind of gift is this? Just a quick survey of scripture will show you. Here's a simple list, if you will. He gives you his faithfulness that will never be removed. He gives you a life that will never end. He gives you an everlasting spring of spiritual water. He gives you a gift that will never be lost. If you know the Lord, you will not only never be lost, he'll never lose you. In addition to that, he also will give you a secure place in his hand, a chain that will never be broken, a love from which we shall never be separated. It keeps getting better. A calling that will never be revoked, a foundation that will never be destroyed, and then Peter, of course, sums it up, an inheritance that will never fade out. No matter how much money you think will make you happy, I promise, once you spend it, it is gone. And yet the kingdom says, I'm going to give you things in the next life that you can never, ever see fade. Moth can't destroy them, and a thief can't take them. The generosity of God in our life sets us up to be generous. Why? Because when I begin to be fulfilled in what he has given me, then the material things I have, my goods, my passions, my wants, my money, my hobbies, they, while are temporary sources of joy, they're not the thing that makes my heart beat. They don't cause me to tick. I don't hold so tightly onto my desires or the objects of my desires so much so that I miss opportunities to share. I quit acting like an owner, and I start acting like a manager. And do you know what the manager is in the New Testament? A steward, the generosity of God. But lastly, it's more blessed to give than receive because of the truth about treasure. What did he really say about treasure? Look at verse 35 again, rather verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We love to switch that. We love to say, whatever you care about, that's where you're going to spend your money. Whatever you want, whatever you love, that's where you'll spend your money. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, no, no, no. Go find where you spend your money, and that is what you love. By the way, it makes perfect sense when you think about it. You ever see a baby 
Women, what do you do when you see a baby? All of you do the same thing. In fact, you can do it in unison. Oh, right? I don't really do that. I'm a guy. But I recognize kids are cute, especially the ones that behave, ones that are asleep. You know, they're cute. I see a kid. I should love humanity. Certainly would never want to see a child, whether someone I know or someone I don't know be harmed or hurt. All of us in this room, if we were in public and we see a child in danger, we would do anything we could. But I don't instantly feel a whole lot for every baby I see. But take one home. Foster one. Adopt one. Birth one. Lose sleep with it. Spend all kind of money on it. You know what they get for diapers? Help that child when they're sick. Study with that child. Play with that child. Love that child. Discipline that child. That child grows up. They become an adult. And nobody in the room is more proud and in love with them than you. Not because that child has more value than the next one. That's just the one you put all your energy, your money, your time, your DNA, your life, your last name on. So when you invested in them, your heart followed. This is the basis of biblical counseling. This is the difference between the world's counsel and the Bible's counsel. Here's what the world says. Just look in your heart. Your heart will lead you. That's not true. The heart is the source of wickedness. The heart can lead you to all kinds of places. I will not build my life on the weak state of my human emotions. I want to know what the maker of my heart says. And when God says it, I will obey it. And when I obey the word before my emotions catch up, what I find is when I do the word, my heart will follow. I've seen so many marriages saved where they say, we don't feel anything for any no more, each other anymore. There's no passion. There's no trust. And we lovingly say, I get it. I can't ask you to flip a switch. There's no magic moment. But you begin to do the word and honor your husband and honor your wife and love them in the way you act and in the way you live. And before you know it, as you do the word, your heart and your feelings will return. This is what Jesus is saying about generosity. When you Find a man or a woman's money, you're finding where their heart is. And when you think about that, contrast that with what the world does with material things. And then think about where we are as a church. I can't reach every student in this community, nor can you. But I can do my part to create a place and a space. I can't reach every nation for Christ. But I know the quicker we retire our debt, the more missionaries we can send. I can't believe that we're the only church God is blessing. I hope not. I know he has his hand on many sister churches. But as much as it depends on us, we need to do what we can do. So let me just give you some wisdom for your wallet and for you note takers. Don't wig out. We'll post it. Here's some wisdom for your wallet based on these principles. Number one, if your giving's not about the gospel, you can forget it. If I motivated you and you write one or two extra checks over the next two months and nothing ever changes in your heart, we've take your money. We appreciate it. But there's no change in your life. It has to be about the gospel. you got to give because you get to G-E-T, not because you got to G-O-T. Number two, in addition to that, your ability to tithe and give is not about your income. Somebody says, Pastor, if I hit the lottery, I promise I'm going to build you three student centers. I used to tell people I wouldn't take money from lottery winners. Then it dawned on me I take money from lottery losers every week. <laughs> I wouldn't take money from a lottery winner, but I'd send them to meet with my deacons. 
They could. It's not about how much money you have. It's about the lifestyle. Young families, listen, if you live off 103% of what you earn, you can forget. You can believe in tithing all you want. You'll never be able to do it. You have to adjust your lifestyle. Number three, giving generously is the single greatest way to protect your life from loving and trusting money and material things. You want to make sure you don't marry your heart to stuff, houses, vacations, promotions? Give it away. Share it. It protects your life. It tells God more than anyone else can. My heart is focused on you. Number four, the Bible never speaks of debt in a positive light. Remember that. There is some debt that's justifiable. I realize that. I have a mortgage. But the Bible never speaks of debt in a positive light. Don't miss that. Number five, God's got given rigged. It's rigged. The greatest blessing is often found in the discipline and the sacrifice and effort that giving requires. Sometimes you just got to get going. Of my six children, Gray's kind of built like me. Here he is right there. Gray and I are, well, we're stocky. If we're being honest, we, we're a little chunky. Now, Gray's incredibly intelligent. He's smart. He's detail-oriented. In fact, I have three children older than him, but if I send Gray to the barn to get me a 5-8 deep well socket, he'll come back with three different options. I got one son. I don't even know if he knows we have a barn. <laughs> but Gray and I had a discussion the other day about his athletic career. He's 10, and I think he's going to be a good ball player. He's got good hand-eye coordination. He likes to hit a baseball but he's chunky and stocky, and I said, man, that's good for football, and I'm living proof that a chunky guy can get a beautiful wife. You just play your cards right, be loyal, hang in there, be persistent, don't give up. Women are much more spiritual than we are. They're not as superficial. They'll look past your stockiness, huskiness, whatever you want to call it. But I encouraged Gray. I said, Gray, you know what you ought to do? You ought to go out and run every day. Go run a little bit. Get moving around. I know you run when we open ice cream, but you ought to just run, you know? I was so proud of Gray. He said, Dad, you ain't going to believe this. I ran two days in a row, and I shaved two minutes off my mile in one day. I said, Gray, that's a world record. He said, I went from 17 minutes to 15 minutes. I said, Gray, if you keep shaving two minutes a day off your mile within a month, you'll be the world record holder. I said, but you just got to start. Some of you's finances are in chaos and crisis. Why don't you start trusting God with them? Just start and watch him prove himself. Number six, as Christians, and as Christians, if I'm a parent, if someone needs to teach my children about giving, then I've failed. I want future pastors to encourage my children to give, and if they stray a little bit, I want them to call them out. But if the first time my children ever hear about seriously giving is from a pastor and as a daddy and a mama, I failed. Number seven, your money's private. It's nobody's business. I've always said to you, and I believe this, I don't look at anybody's giving. I have no idea what you give. And if you ever wanted to look at Laurel and I's giving, you'd be welcome to do that. Our executive pastor will be glad to pull it because I'm accountable to you. I don't look at that. I don't know what you give. But I know this, even though giving is private, don't be so private you're not willing to ask godly people for help. Find godly givers and ask them. And finally, number eight, and this is the one I used to be nervous about, but it's true. 
you'll never outgive the Lord. I'm not talking about some prosperity blabber that says you sow into this ministry and he'll return it tenfold based on some verse they take out of context or out of interpretative, uh, interpretive uh, meaning. No, no, no. I have watched God honor givers all my life. And I'm not talking about wealthy people. I'm talking about common folk raised on a mill hill that trusted God and gave. And God always made sure they had what they needed. You will not out give him find any biblical giver in this church and i promise you you'll never stop them from giving because god has proven himself and then you think about what it means to be sent god sent jesus and he gave it all and he sent us to do the same i don't know who's going to attend your funeral for those of you who are older maybe i'll have the privilege of preaching it but don't you want to live in such a way that the day they honor your life, they can say, here lies a woman who was generous. She supported her church. She helped her neighbor. She blessed her family. Here's a man who gave out of an abundance of appreciation for the grace of Jesus and because he wanted to emulate his God. And our God, he's a giver. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity to be challenged and to be encouraged. In this room and watching online, people are at all different places. There are some who may have never given a dime to anything. There are others who give, when they think about it, it's rather casual. May be out of reaction, sometimes out of guilt. There are some who said, you know what, Pastor, there's been a place in my life where I was given and I got out of the habit and things came up. And, and then there are others who've been very faithful and they're consistent. There are some who are wealthy and giving to their church really doesn't challenge them. And you've convicted them that as you bless us, you expect us to bless the kingdom more. The scripture says where much is given, much is expected. The good news is, is that whether we be a 14-year-old kid with a part-time summer job and you ask us to tithe off a few hundred bucks or we're a 44 year old man in the middle of our career and it would be a life-altering decision to begin to truly give according to your word or we may be that precious grandmother who lives on a mean a fixed income and faithfully supports her church you did not wake us up today to beat us up. You did not wake us up to disparage us. You certainly do not measure out your love based on our faithfulness or the amount of money we have. In fact, the Bible teaches over and over that you are near to the poor and the brokenhearted. And you even said in your word it's hard for wealthy people to get to heaven. Not because you don't love them, but because you know that with worldly wealth comes false security and we stop trusting you and start trusting our insurance policies, our 401ks, the equity in our homes, and our own professional ability to earn money. And when we trust that stuff, it leaves us wanting more. It causes us to be empty, and we forget about the Lord God. But Lord, you, you've not left us unclear. We have a word from you. So my question to every man in this room and every woman, every student, every retiree, what are we going to do? How are we going to position ourselves to be givers? It's so much bigger than just one student center. Student centers come and they go. 
Any building our churches ever build will be condemned in a few hundred years. They are very temporary. But the lives that are changed through the missions and the ministries of this church will ring through the hallways of heaven for all of eternity as the song of the redeemed proclaimed, worthy is the Lamb who has taken away the sins of the world. Our God is always up to something good. As we close in prayer and I say amen, we're going to stand, we're going to sing that. If I've never met you, I'd love to meet you outside at the hub. I hope all of you will go online, get the information, do what you can. And then find somebody who's struggling and share with them tangible ways of love. Minister to them so that we not become inward focused, but that we be a people who are characterized by generosity. And to me, generosity smells like an empty grave. Father, you move now as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's